It is question and answer night where all your answers to all your questions will be provided. I am totally kidding. Somebody over here said, hope you've got all the right answers tonight. And I said, well, thanks a lot for putting on the pressure. Uh, When I think about question and answer sessions, what I think about is the open forum at Freed Hardeman University lectureship where every afternoon... And that's, um, that's coming up in February for a week. Every afternoon at 2.30 in Lloyd Auditorium, Dr. Ralph Gilmore would take the stage and anybody in that whole auditorium could stand up and go to one of two microphones and ask him any question that they wanted to ask. And boy, that made me nervous just sitting in the audience. That made, I mean, my hands are pretty sweaty as it is all the time, but that made them even sweatier thinking about having to stand up there and field questions from preachers and Bible students, um, you know, many of whom were older and had been studying God's Word all their lives, I would just be terrified. Now, in the past couple years or so, they have added a couple guys to be up there with them, so it's more of a panel, so that takes the heat off a little bit, but still, that, you know, that, I don't think I would ever agree to doing that. But I will agree to a Sunday night here in Winchester addressing some questions that I have come up with myself and studied ahead of time in order to present. Now, I even thought about, at the end, asking if anybody else had questions and not, maybe not answering those up here because I don't mind saying, hey, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, and I need to do a little bit more digging and studying on that. So if I'm feeling brave, then I might do that. But if I'm feeling tired and like I want to wrap things up, then I won't. So at the end of this presentation, you will know my mood based on what I do. Um, some of these questions I've gotten from, from y'all, and I, I just have six questions, and there's maybe one or two offshoots that we'll cover. Some of them are, I don't want to say more trivial but I'll say less consequential. There's some questions that, that involve weightier matters of the faith, and there's some that are just sort of interesting. And I bet, as you've read, you've had both types of questions. You've had big questions, and you've had more detailed type questions. You know, what is that about? Why is that thrown in there? We're not going to cover all of them, but maybe we, we will cover a few that, that you've wondered about along the way. So let's start with the biggie. Why, why did all the patriarchs have multiple wives, more than one wife. And why was, why was it seemingly okay uh, for them also to have children by their wives' servants? I'm thinking of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. I'm thinking of, well, is it, is it the case with Isaac? Somebody help me out. Is it the case with Isaac? I've suddenly gone blank. I'm thinking about Jacob. I preached on him this morning. I'm thinking about Jacob and Rachel and Leah and their two servants who they gave to him uh, to have children. I've heard that from several of you. You know, why was that seemingly okay? Well, I've got a few thoughts on that and probably we could spend the whole hour talking about that. But I just, I want to, Throw out some thoughts that at least help me to make sense of this. Here's the first. 
And I think this is good. This is just a good principle for reading your Bible anyway. And this may be one you want to jot down. In the Bible, descriptive doesn't always equal prescriptive. And I'm going to explain that. But the statement is this. Descriptive doesn't always equal prescriptive. Just because the Bible describes somebody engaging in a certain type of behavior, even if that person is uh, a lauded figure of the faith, even if that person is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Joseph, you, you name him, just because the Bible describes that person doing something doesn't mean it prescribes that behavior for us. doesn't mean it is putting its stamp of approval. And that's true even if the Bible doesn't just come out and say, and this activity was displeasing to the Lord. We have to sift through all that these people did and look elsewhere in the Scriptures to discern whether or not this action or that action was pleasing or displeasing to God. We cannot assume that everything that these guys and more did, uh, the faithful greats of Scripture, pleased God. And as an aside, it is a, a good reminder for us that the, the lives that they lived are not to be totally emulated. You know, lock, stock, and barrel. We, we need to discern as we look at their lives. These are not morality tales, and we can say, you know what, just look at Joseph and just do everything Joseph did, or just look at Abraham and do everything that Abraham did. That's not the primary purpose of these stories in the Old Testament. They're not figures to emulate, and they're not always, it's not about bad behavior to avoid. Now certainly, there are lessons that we can learn, and there are things that they did that we ought to do, and things that they did that we should avoid. But the main purpose of, of Genesis is to set up this grand story about how God is planning to redeem all humanity through this one family, through Abraham and his descendants. And so, it is not the case that we should just look at any one Bible character and copy everything that that person did just because they're listed in Hebrews chapter 11 as somebody who had great faith. Now, we have the benefit, and, and let's go back to the issue at hand here, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the rest, and the fact that they were not faithful to one woman at one time, that they had more than one wife. We have the benefit of having the entire Word of God. And that really gives us a leg up, that gives us an advantage even over the patriarchs. God has slowly and gradually revealed His will to us throughout history, uh, ending with the last will and testament of Jesus Christ, the New Testament, to the point that we have the authoritative, reliable, final Word of God, and they did not. There, were things, there are things that are clear to us now about God's plan for us and for this world that were not clear to them then. Uh, so, when I say we have the benefit of the entire word, I am thinking mainly of what is said in Genesis about God's original intention, His original ideal for marriage, and what Jesus, the Son of God, Himself said when He came to the earth. So, Let's look at a couple passages here. I don't want to ramble on and on because we've got some other questions to consider. But 
Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, we see, uh, or verse 24 rather, Genesis 2, 24, we see Moses laying out God's uh, intention for marriage. Uh, He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so from the very beginning, God's ideal, his intention for marriage was for one man and for one woman to come together in, in a, a permanent relationship until death do them part. And if you fast forward into the New Testament and you have Jesus responding to a challenge that was, that was lobbed at him by the Pharisees, look with me in Mark. Uh, chapter 10, verses 2 through 12. What you are about to see is Jesus appealing to God's original intention that is laid out in Genesis chapter 2. So in Mark chapter 10, verse 2, which, by the way, was many uh, was your text in Bible class this morning, Right? And so maybe that's another reason that this is fresh on everybody's mind because you just read about what Jesus said about marriage and we're reading about all these guys in the Old Testament who didn't seem to operate by that standard. So what's up with that? Well, let's read what Jesus says. Chapter 10, verse 2, And the Pharisees came up and and they wanted to test Jesus. They weren't weren't genuinely asking him uh, this question. They wanted to trip him up. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he said, well, what did Moses say? What did he command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said, that's because of the hardness of your heart that he wrote this commandment or he made this concession. But from the beginning, God made them male and female. That's a quotation from Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That's a quotation from Genesis, what we just read, 2.24. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so we have, from the mouth of the Son of God, these statements about the sanctity of marriage, that he goes all the way back and and picks up that original intention laid out in Genesis chapter 2, and listen, that doesn't, that doesn't explain away why, that doesn't help us in a big way to understand why it seems that Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob were permitted to do that sort of thing. In fact, I wouldn't even say that they were permitted. I would say that from what we know in Genesis and what we know in Mark, that this was the ideal, and it, w- it was the ideal all along. Now, God still worked through them. He still used them. He still blessed them. And maybe we don't quite understand uh, why they were not confronted with this, why they were not held accountable. They, he worked through them in spite of this. We may not understand why God would permit that. However, that doesn't mean that we are free to operate in any way that we want. What we get in Mark chapter 2 is a very definitive statement about marriage. 
and divorce too. Because if you keep reading in verses 10, 11, and 12, you see when Jesus was with his disciples in a more interpersonal setting, he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So there's sin involved when you break up the marriage covenant. And of course, in Matthew's account, we don't get it here, but in Matthew's account, we get what is the sole exception, which is unfaithfulness or fornication. And so, this has to carry more weight than the example of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What we get here is a clearer picture of God's intention. Now, that is not to say that there is not abundant grace available at the cross for those who have failed in this particular way. As long as there is true repentance, uh, there is grace and forgiveness extended. And so, I don't know if any of this helps. I know that I really didn't explain why they were allowed to do that. I'm just saying what we have gives us a fuller picture than even what they may have had. Um, And some of you may have some comments for me about this. Maybe you've got a thought that would help me to understand this better, help us to understand this better. I just wanted to bring Jesus into the mix and allow the the Son of God to speak over this whole situation uh, and remind us that 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 really takes precedence over the example that the examples that we have of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Okay, let's carry on because I don't want to run out of time here. Um, Somebody else said to me, why are there so many women who are barren in Genesis? Why do we keep running into women who are not able to have children? Sarah is barren. That's the first thing we learn about Sarah. When she's introduced in the Scriptures, uh, Moses says, as he's writing Genesis, Sarah was barren. And then Rebecca is barren for a time, as is Rachel. And so we see that barrenness, the the, uh, inability to have children versus fertility, is a recurring theme in Genesis. And that goes all the way back to God's command, to his blessing that he delivered to Adam and Eve, and again to Noah's family, and again and again to what? Be fruitful and multiply. And that is uh, not just a command, but a blessing from God. And Genesis regularly reminds us, and I think this is, and this is going to be my answer to this question. I think the answer to this question is that Genesis, that God, through Genesis, wants to remind us that He is ultimately the one who creates human life. He is the one who is ultimately in charge. And those of you, those of us who have, you know, as couples struggled with infertility, know that truth. Because we think, don't we, that we can plan our lives and plan out our families. And then you learn there's something else at work here. You know, I don't get the final say on how this all plays out, that Ultimately, God is in charge. And what we find in Genesis is God wants to remind us, hey, you know, you are not in control of your life. I am the one who gives life and I am the one who takes it away. 
And because God is the giver of life, life is very precious. That's what we were reminded of over the weekend with the March for Life in in Washington and the emphasis on the sanctity of life. And that is something Christians ought to be very concerned about and serious about. We believe that all life is precious and special because all life is created by God. That includes unborn life. That includes life that has yet to leave the womb. And so I think this interplay between barrenness and fertility, this is a reminder that ultimately God is the giver of life. He is the one who is in charge of all things, including life. Uh, And speaking of fertility, here is an odd one for you. Somebody said, what is going on in Genesis 30, verses 14 through 16, with the mandrakes? Did you notice the thing about the mandrakes with Leah and Rachel? And of course, we already know that there's strife between these two, uh, Leah and Rachel, the two wives of, um, of Jacob. And it really, it ups the ante here when, in this account, uh, in, in verse 14, things get even more intense. Let, let's read this to as a refresher here. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Well, we don't exactly know what these mandrakes may have been, but this historically has been associated with the plant. I'm going to give you the scientific name. Mandragora officinarum. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that uh, correctly, but this type of plant has been long regarded as having unusual properties. And Reuben, the son of Jacob, and Leah goes and finds these and brings them to Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? So, I mean, you can hear. Boy, can you hear, you know, the, the, the tone of voice here, uh, the bitterness that exists between these two ladies. You're going to... You know, our husband likes you better. You want these two on top of that? Well, why does Rachel want the mandrakes in the first place? Well, uh, we can't know for sure, but it may have, have, Rachel may have thought, as others may have in this time, that they would increase her fertility. We know that was a struggle for her. Leah was able to have numerous children before Rachel had any. And it's all, there's also evidence that suggests mandrakes were viewed as having the ability to make one more desirable for your spouse. And so maybe she thought, if I could get a hold of those mandrakes, um, I will be irresistible to Jacob. And maybe even he'll just kick Leah to the curb and we'll be done with her, okay? Um, let's keep reading here. <clears throat> Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrake. So maybe Rachel is saying here, hey, you know what? Have him one more night, but when I get a hold of those mandrakes, I'll be the favorite because I'll be able to have children and I'll be uh, irresistible to him. So when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must uh, come lie with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sanitize that a bit, a bit, edit it. For I have hired you with my son's mandrake. So he lay with her that night, 
And God listened to Leah, and she bore Jacob a fifth son. So this seems to have backfired on Rachel. If Rachel thought, you know what, if I get these mandrakes, I'll be the one who gets all the attention. I'll be able to have children. Well, now God is mindful of Leah. And Leah has another child. And then she has another one. And then she has a daughter before Rachel has any children. And so is there a lesson in this at all? Well, I don't know. But if there is one, maybe it's this. The fact that it did not do what Rachel thought it would do is maybe, just maybe, God saying, don't trust in superstitious remedies. Trust in me. Rachel was trying to engineer this situation whereby she would be the favorite wife. And by the way, going back to our first question, if this isn't a case study on why you shouldn't have more than one spouse, I don't know what is. This is a mess. Who would want to live in a household like that? One is good enough for me, all right? I'm thankful for what Jesus said. Um, But maybe God is saying, don't try to engineer this situation through this superstitious remedy. Trust in me. And I don't know if God is just sort of working on me with that theme, but I just continue to see it in the book of Genesis. I saw it in the story of Jacob, where Jacob, it seems went throughout his life trying to control every situation. He really was the grabber. He was trying to grab all of God's blessings. Grab, grab, grab. And God is trying to teach him how to receive. Because God had already said, Jacob, you are the the chosen one. You're the special one. You're the blessed one. And yet we find Jacob trying to deceive his way into this and deceive his way into that. And God in that wrestling match finally gets a hold of him. And tries to rid him of his self-sufficiency. And so maybe this small, strange little account is another lesson to us about placing our faith and trust in God and not trying to control everything about our lives. Okay, the next question. And these are all scrambled up. These are all out of order. Who is Cain's wife? In Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. We find that after Cain is punished for murdering his brother Abel, he is sent out. Uh, God God, um, sends him out from his presence, and he, in verse 17, has found a wife. Because it said he knew his wife, and she conceived, and bore their son Enoch. And then we get a very strange account from 17 to 26 to 24 that I wondered about when I read. Maybe you did too. But I think that account is illustrating the the ruinous effects of sin, how sinfulness is becoming even more rampant. Because Cain killed his brother Abel, uh, and then one of Cain's descendants kills a man simply for wounding him. And so we see that things have gotten even more out of hand. They've gotten more extreme. But let me back up from that because that's not the question that uh, is being considered. Who is Cain's wife? Verse 17. You know, there's only one family. It all started with Adam and Eve, the first humans, the first couple. So a reasonable assumption is that Cain married a relative, 
maybe even a sister. Because we know that Adam uh, had other sons and daughters, according to Genesis chapters, uh, chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. And that seems very gross uh, to us, just to put it bluntly. Uh, that's not something that we would do. And there were laws in the old law, in the Mosaic law, that forbid marrying within your family. And we still operate uh, by those laws for, for all intents and purposes. It's still inappropriate in our culture today, and for good reason. But those laws had not yet been handed down. You see, this goes back to what we talked about earlier in the gradual revelation of, of, of God and how He revealed His will uh, to man. Uh, this happened before the Mosaic Law had been delivered to the people through Moses. And it may also explain why, you know, all the patriarchs were part of the same family. Did you notice this as we were reading Genesis? They all came, they got their wives from the same family. You know, they kept going back to the homeland to get the wife, and then they'd bring her back to the promised land. And all that was going on before God communicated His law through Moses that such relationships were inappropriate. And so they should not be held to the standard that was later delivered under Moses, is, is my short answer there. Um, now a related question is, who's, who is Cain so afraid of in verse 14? He says, you're going to drive me away from, your, from you and your face. I'll be a fugitive and a wanderer, and whoever finds me will kill me. Well, who is he worried about finding him? If there's just a few people on the earth, there's just one family, well, maybe uh, the boys were old enough that Abel had already had children and he's worried about Abel's descendants eventually uh, getting around to him and taking vengeance on the death of their father. Or maybe he's just paranoid. Being alienated or the threat of alienation from God can make you that way. If you feel like or if you are distant from God, it makes you very fearful and anxious and paranoid, and so maybe Cain's fears here are unfounded, but he is fearful because he knows he will not be in the presence of the Lord. And when you're not abiding in the presence of the Lord, scary and dangerous things can happen. Now, we don't know the answer here. The text doesn't tell us, and that is because the answer is obviously unnecessary to understanding the narrative. And that's true of a lot of the questions that we wind up asking of Scripture. We sure would like to know the answer. We're sure curious about it. But at the end of the day, we trust that this book gives us what we need. And we don't just believe that. This book teaches that. That all things that pertain to life and godliness are provided to us. So some questions, it's fun to ask, it's fun to speculate. We want to do some digging and try to figure it out. But at the end of the day, we rest in the fact that we know exactly what we're supposed to know. And if we have some leftover questions after Jesus returns, then we can save them and ask when we get to where we're going. A couple more. Maybe that's not a good thought to share on the night when we're just asking and answering questions. I don't know, but... Um, why was Rebecca given a nose ring? Do you see this in Genesis 24? 
And I thought about, I did, as I was laying this out, I had this question as the last question, but I thought, how do I segue from nose rings to the invitation? And so I thought, well, I'll move it back one. Thank you for those uh, courtesy laughs. I appreciate it. Genesis chapter 24, you will notice that this messenger has been sent to find a wife for Isaac, and he finds Rebekah, and when Rebekah invites this messenger into her father's household, the messenger gives her some jewelry. Uh, and among those is a nose ring. And I didn't notice this until somebody pointed it out to me. Uh, verse 47, as the messenger is repeating this account, he says, I put the ring on her nose. And so she had a place for a nose ring. And so apparently, this was something that was in fashion in this era and viewed as a lavish gift. Uh, this is something that you know a husband would give a wife. As, as we give our wives necklaces and bracelets and earrings, you'd give a nose ring. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 12, we find this common metaphor of God as the husband and Israel as his bride. And God is saying, I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. That's talking about all the ways God has lavishly blessed his people. How the husband has poured gift after gift on to his bride. And how, in the context there, how they have still been unfaithful to him. But we see the example there of God as the husband giving his bride a nose ring. Now, nose rings have not been in vogue in Western culture. Until pretty recently. Now you see them more and more. Uh, but I guess they're biblical because Rebecca had one. So there you go. That's all I got to say on nose rings. I don't know if you're expecting more on nose rings, but that's the, that's the extent of the nose ring conversation tonight. Maybe that can continue in the lobby. All right, final question. Why was God concerned about people becoming too powerful in Genesis chapter 11? Chapter 11, verse 6. In Genesis 11, verse 6, uh, this is, we're talking about the Tower of Babel. And this mass of people coming together uh, and building this giant edifice up into the sky. And the detail that I love about it is God has to come down to see it. You know, their efforts are that lame, that paltry, that He's got to come out of heaven in order to even see the thing. They think they're doing something pretty grand and awesome. And the Lord said, behold, in verse 6, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This is only the beginning. And everything that they talk about doing, it's, it's going to be possible for them unless I do something, unless I humble them, and scatter them throughout the earth like I told them to do originally. Go throughout the earth, be fruitful, and multiply. But why is it that God is so concerned about people becoming too powerful? Well, and here's that theme again. God has always been concerned that His people will become too self-sufficient. And cease to rely and depend upon Him. I don't think God has a problem with human ingenuity. 
We are blessed in so many ways with the advances that we have seen in medicine. Aren't we blessed uh, that we have hospitals and doctors and surgeons who can do extraordinary things for the human body and medicines that we can take that can help us? We ought to be thankful for that and for, for God giving humans the ability to discover such things. But you see how I worded that. That should always be the attitude. God has given us the ability. God has blessed us with the resources that we need in order to come up with this. This was not about us. This was not about how smart we are. God gets the glory. God gets the credit. And this, what was going on among these people in this day and age, had nothing to do with God. God doesn't have a problem with human ingenuity until it leads us away from depending upon Him. And that so often happens. It's happened in our culture where you have people who are so self-assured and so self-confident in their abilities and they have totally forgotten that God is the reason that they live and breathe and have the wherewithal to do anything. The people in Genesis chapter 11 have come together in order to what? Make a name for themselves. And it had nothing to do with God. It had nothing to do with giving God glory. It had nothing to do with following God's will. It was all about, let's make ourselves more famous. And God, because He loves us, got in the middle of all that to to prevent that from happening. Tonight, maybe you find that you are too self-sufficient. And your life has not been focused on following God's will and yielding yourself to Him. See, that's, this is a much better segue than the nose ring question, right? That flowed much better into the invitation than the nose rings. Tonight, if you have not put Jesus Christ on in baptism, or if you're struggling spiritually in any way, you have one more opportunity before we head home, before we start a new week, to make things right in your relationship with God. And we, we beg you, we implore you to come do that right now as we stand and sing.